COVID-19 cases surging in China, stadiums turn to makeshift fever clinics, and concerns about new variants running high. One man and a Twitter handle becoming an overnight sensation amid China's nationwide protests. He shares his story and the dangers he's faced. Expectations for China's growth plummeting to their lowest in decades. Foreign investors offloaded $100 billion worth of Chinese bonds in 10 successive months. Apple going ahead with its move out of China. The tech giant securing a site in Vietnam to make its MacBook computers. And Taiwan seeing another round of visitors. A U.S. congressional delegation visiting the island alongside lawmakers from Europe. Welcome to China in Focus. I'm Tiffany Meyer. Before we turn to today's news, we have an announcement about our December 15th episode. In that one, we sat down with Brad Good, an American businessman, to hear about his first-hand experiences from China since 1988 and to talk about his project, the China Declaration, a global push to end the Chinese Communist Party. The China Declaration is based on the Declaration of Independence. It details the transgressions the Chinese Communist Party has made against the Chinese people and other countries. The Declaration asks a simple question. Do you believe the Chinese Communist Party must be defeated? During that episode, an incorrect website was shown on screen. The correct website where you can go to sign the declaration is the ChinaDeclaration.com. We regret the error. Cities across China are scrambling to install hospital beds and build makeshift fever clinics. That's as international concern is growing about Beijing's surprise change in its COVID-19 policy and that the move might trigger new virus mutations. Here's more. This stadium in Beijing has been turned into a makeshift fever clinic as authorities in China reported five more deaths. It is one of hundreds of similar centers that are being added to major cities. China this month began dismantling its stringent zero-COVID regime of lockdowns and testing after protests against curbs. Now, as the virus sweeps through a country of 1.4 billion people who lack natural immunity, having been shielded for so long, there is growing concern about possible deaths, virus mutations and the impact on the economy and trade. Xu Wenbo, an official with the Chinese Center for Disease Control and Prevention, told reporters new mutations would occur, but played down concerns. He added that the possibility of new strains becoming more lethal is low. International concern is also growing over Beijing's surprise decision to let the virus run free. U.S. State Department spokesperson Ned Price said on Monday the potential for the virus to mutate as it spreads in China was a threat for people everywhere. The toll of the virus uh, is of uh, concern to uh, the rest of the world, uh, given the size of uh, China's GDP, given the size of China's economy. Speaking at the same news conference as Xu, the head of Peking University First Hospital's infectious disease department, Wang Guiqiang, said only deaths caused by pneumonia and respiratory failure after contracting COVID would be classified as COVID deaths. Heart attacks or cardiovascular disease causing death of infected people will not get that classification. In total, China has reported just 5,242 COVID deaths, 
since the pandemic emerged in late 2019, a very low toll by global standards. But there are rising doubts that the statistics are reflecting the true impact of a disease ripping through cities after China dropped curbs on December 7th. Since then, some hospitals have become inundated, pharmacies emptied of medicines. Many people have gone into self-imposed lockdowns. Some health experts estimate 60% of people in China, equivalent to 10% of the world's population, could be infected over the coming months and that more than 2 million could die. China only classifies deaths caused by pneumonia and respiratory failure as COVID-19 deaths. While every deceased person in the U.S. who tested positive for the virus gets counted as a COVID-19 death. Next, we zoom in on the story of a 30-year-old Chinese man and how, through his Twitter account, he became one of the most important conduits of information as recent protests sparked across China. As China's historic protests against COVID-19 curbs erupted in late November, a Twitter handle named Teacher Lee is Not Your Teacher became an overnight sensation. The account and the man behind it reposted details and footage of protests from across China, skirting China's online censorship from his home in Italy. Even in some small cities and in local neighborhoods, people were demanding lockdowns be lifted. Things happen far beyond what we have seen. It's just that much has gone unreported. Li's posts largely reached a more tech-savvy generation of young Chinese. They're using virtual private networks, or VPNs, to circumvent China's Great Firewall and access uncensored content on platforms banned in China, like Twitter and Instagram. He says much of his content was sent to him and that he got thousands of messages per day. In the past, Chinese people weren't willing to express themselves because they knew it's very dangerous. For example, when you type some high-profile people's names online, you would be interviewed by the police. This time, we have seen many people chanting in front of the police. All the grievances that have been suppressed for so long would also drive people to express themselves. Li is a painter and former art teacher from Anhui province in eastern China. He explained that during the height of the protests, he was posting every few minutes and sometimes only got two hours of sleep per night. His followers skyrocketed from 140,000 in mid-November to over 860,000 now. This account has become a symbol of the Chinese people's pursuit of freedom of speech. It represents the things we need to know and the things we want to know. It represents our right to know. The protests have been credited for China's recent easing of COVID-19 restrictions. Some also called for China's ruling communist regime and leader Xi Jinping to step down. Demonstrations have calmed amid a heavy police presence and some protesters getting arrested. China's foreign ministry has said rights and freedoms must be exercised lawfully. Li says his efforts have made him vulnerable, receiving death threats, while his family back home has been questioned by police. The most important thing is not my life, but the security of this account.
Even though this account is no longer safe or it is deleted or something else, the awareness of people to speak, to express themselves has started. He adds that people in China can go home now that lockdowns have lifted. Right now, I am a person without a future. Despite this, he says he's determined to keep going. The World Bank is cutting its growth outlook for China again, citing the pandemic and ongoing property sector weakness. In a report released on Tuesday, the World Bank lowered its expectations for China's economic growth to 2.7 percent for this year. If the prediction proves accurate, it would mark China's worst performance in nearly half a century. China set the same target at 5.5 percent. A survey by World Economics shows China's business confidence has fallen to its lowest in 10 years. What's more, foreign investors cut Chinese bonds for 10 months in a row, offloading more than $100 billion worth. Over in Silicon Valley, Apple is taking another step towards its out-of-China production goal. According to Japanese newspaper Nikkei Asia, for the first time ever next year, Apple will begin producing some of its MacBook computers in Vietnam. And its assembly partner Foxconn could begin assembling devices there as soon as May. Once production begins there, the tech giant will be capable of producing all of its main products outside China. That is, iPhones in India and MacBooks, Apple Watches and iPads in Vietnam. Apple has been trying to increase the reliability of its supply chain, which leans heavily on China. That effort comes amid ongoing geopolitical and health challenges in the country. The former United States trade representative says Washington's China policy needs to change and that an incremental shift is not enough. Robert Lighthizer made the comments in a guest essay to The New York Times on Saturday. In the article, he shares his take on why he believes a shift in how the U.S. deals with the communist regime is needed. Commerce Secretary Gina Raimondo recently proposed an incremental shift away from reliance on China. In contrast to those remarks, Lighthizer suggested adopting explicit policy of strategic decoupling. He explained it wouldn't be a total decoupling, but one that should be done over time and in an organized way. He described it as necessary to make sure U.S.-China relations stay beneficial to America. Highlighting Beijing's aggression toward Taiwan, its arming of the South China Sea, friendship with Russia, and efforts to build overseas military outposts, Lighthizer wrote that Washington must prepare both economically and militarily. He noted that the U.S. should encourage mutually beneficial dealings, like trading agriculture, raw materials, and some consumer and pharmaceutical goods, and discourage harmful aspects, like importing computers, cars, and telecom gear. Lighthizer also called for disentangling U.S. technology from China, as well as shutting down apps like TikTok that mine user data and push influence or propaganda. He emphasized the goal would be to help the U.S. not to punish China or to hold it back, though he noted that China is not an ally but an adversary bent on world dominance. A steady stream of visitors are arriving in Taiwan. Taiwan's President Tsai Ing-wen met with two delegations on Tuesday from Capitol Hill in Washington and the European Union. The prosperity of Taiwan is a bipartisan, bicameral issue. 
important to all of us. I must avail myself of this opportunity to thank the U.S. Congress. Congress has upheld the U.S. security commandment to Taiwan and helped to defend our democracy. Congress recently passed legislation that will finance weapon sales and authorize arms transfers to Taiwan. Tsai also met with lawmakers from the EU. The fact that I am here today is a testament to the importance that the European Union places on the relationship between the European Union and Taiwan. The delegation leader reiterated that the EU opposes China's threat of using force or economic coercion against Taiwan. The European Union has been courting the island, which produces virtually all of the globe's most cutting-edge semiconductors. Taiwan-based company TSMC is the world's largest contract microchip maker. It had said last year it would review a potential expansion into Germany. Beijing is often riled when foreign delegations visit Taiwan. It claims the island is part of China's territory, despite the Chinese communist regime never having ruled Taiwan. A major Apple supplier is likely facing a heavy fine coming from Taiwan's government. Taiwanese company Foxconn is said to have made an investment in a Chinese microchip maker without permission from authorities. Here's more on the details. Foxconn assembles iPhones and is the world's largest contract electronics producer. It previously disclosed investments in Chinese microchip conglomerate Tsinghua Unigroup, but announced late last week that it would sell all its shares, worth over $770 million. But the Taiwanese government responded to the plan, saying it would fine Foxconn because the company didn't get permission from Taiwanese authorities back when it bought the shares. According to earlier media reports, the fine could top $800 million if sanctioned. Taiwan has been tightening legislation to prevent what it calls China's theft of its microchip technology. According to Taiwanese law, the government can prohibit investments in China based on national security and industrial development considerations. The Chinese chip company Tsinghua Unigroup plays a major role in the Chinese communist regime's ambition to be self-sufficient in producing semiconductors. Last year, the company found itself buried under $30 billion in debt. Another Beijing-backed company later offered assistance, pouring billions of dollars into Tsinghua to help it avoid bankruptcy. Coming up, what role is China playing in the Middle East? The first China-Arab summit from earlier this month highlights Beijing's growing influence in the region, known for its oil. Since the Chinese are seeking to dominate and seeking to control, anybody else who is seeking to destabilize stable areas and stable governments so that Chinese influence can come in and take over, that's something the Chinese are going to support. We sat down with Rabbi Yaakov Menken, managing director of the Coalition for Jewish Values, to find out more. His comments and more after the break, here on China in Focus. Welcome back to China in Focus. I'm Tiffany Meyer. Chinese leader Xi Jinping attended the first China-Arab State Summit earlier this month. What does China's growing influence in the Middle East mean for the region and for the West? And why is Palestine supporting the one-China policy instead of the Uyghur Muslims in China who face suppression? We sat down with Rabbi Yaakov Menken, managing director of the Coalition for Jewish Values, for details. Rabbi Yaakov, thank you so much for joining us. Great to have you. And thank you for having me. 
Rabbi, I want to begin with the recent China-Arab summit. What can you tell us? What was the biggest significance of that? What, what I thought was most interesting is that uh, President Mahmoud Abbas of the Palestinian Authority comes to this China-Arab summit and immediately endorses the one China policy. And if we know anything about China and its relation with Muslims, if he cared about the safety of Uyghur Muslims, he would not be saying that. If he cared about democracy, he would not be saying that. He would be on, in favor of Taiwan and independence and liberty and democracy. That's not what he did. And instead, he targeted the United Kingdom and the United States, neither of whom were there, for backing Israel. And Rabbi, so what exactly are we seeing happening? What are some of the big changes here that we might see going forward? Well, I would like to think that what we're going to see is the Arab, for all that there was a China-Arab summit, that the Arabs recognize that, again, Taiwan with independence and liberty and democracy is in a much better situation. It's producing much more per capita, even though there's so many Chinese products coming out, the Taiwanese are producing much more per person and much more income per person and better lives. Per, and by the way, they're not spending any of their efforts on persecuting their own people, on persecuting minorities like the Tibetans and the Uyghur Muslims and the Inner Mongolians. The, the Chinese government, the Chinese regime is all about domination and control. And to see members of the Arab world to say, oh no, we're gonna to talk to Israel, which is the democracy in the region, and make peace because they recognize the Iranians and totalitarianism, that's dangerous. The Palestinian Authority is run by a totalitarian who once, I mean, he was elected to his job, and guess what? He refuses to call new elections. He's now in the 17th year of his four-year term. That's Mahmoud Abbas. And so, of course, he's going to declare support for the Chinese government because it's all about totalitarianism. Those who actually care about human rights tolerance and, by the way, other Muslims are going to side with Taiwan in that conflict and also favor peace in their own region, especially with Israel. And how does that compare then with what the Chinese regime has been doing in the area? If they're instead saying, you know, helping, well, you know, really supporting the one China policy. But what about what the Chinese regime has done in that area? Well, this form of making nice between Mahmoud Abbas and the Chinese is all about, you know, if they can get Chinese support for the Palestinian Authority, that means more support for terrorism. It means more support for instability in that part of the world. Since the Chinese are seeking to dominate and seeking to control, anybody else who is seeking to destabilize stable areas and stable governments so that Chinese influence can come in and take over, that's something the Chinese are going to support. And anything that favors authoritarianism and dictatorial control over democracy is something Mahmoud Abbas is going to support. So the fact that they are uh, partnering with each other should not surprise us, but it should trouble us because it's a further sign of China seeking to destabilize other parts of the world and those in the Arab world supporting Chinese authoritarianism over democracy. And Rabbi, what would that support look like? Is it monetary or actual military help or what, what are we expecting here? I would assume there's going to be a one-way street from China to the Palestinian Authority. 
and and it remains to be seen. I don't imagine that, you know, certainly the Chinese are not going to put troops on the ground. The question is, will they give military equipment either clandestinely or openly? Uh, because previously the Palestinian Authority was being supplied by Iran. Now Iran is facing increasing troubles and increasing interception of its shipments. So it may be that the Chinese are going to start being a new supplier of weapons and arms. You know, who knows? And of course, uh, often that comes with bundles of cash. And Rabbi, you mentioned how either way this support pans out, it's going to destabilize the region. So how do you see that impacting, say, maybe the U.S. or the geopolitical situation in general? It's going to leave the United States further isolated from the rest of the world. Unfortunately, with the Iran deal, you see that the Europeans were all gung-ho about moving forward, but at least especially during the previous administration, there was a total backing off of this idea that you can you know, buy off Iranian peace. It's, it's just not going to happen. They're trying to get nuclear weapons, and of course the Iranians are trying to destabilize the region completely. What you are going to see is, you know, if the Chinese, to whatever extent they get involved in the Middle East, it's going to increase the destabilization right now. Because unfortunately, they don't invest in other countries to help them develop internally and help move them forward. This is not like uh, beneficent organizations and governments investing in Africa. This is something very different. This is investing in warfare. And Rabbi, you mentioned earlier, if we zoom back to the human rights issue, how some of the Muslims are even having, say, organ harvesting done to them. So what are some stories that you've heard in this area that can really help show just the extent of it? Uh, I have heard from, and this is, of course, privately, from Uyghur Muslims that they get phone calls from the Chinese. The Chinese are monitoring everything that's being said in the media about them. And so when Uyghur Muslims go on the record in the United States, they will get a phone call because their aunt is being held in an internment camp in China, in that region. And the Chinese will say to the niece, things are going to go poorly for your aunt if you continue to speak on the record. And with the, say, growing destabilization happening in the Middle Eastern region and with stories like what we're hearing with the Uyghurs, how do you see that impacting the Arab world going forward with this growing Chinese presence? Uh, I, you know, I'm, I'm going to say that I think that the, the less Chinese presence, the better. Like I said, it's a destabilizing factor. It's not a pro-peace factor. There's a lot of voices that can have an influence in the Arab world to help them move towards moderation. What we've seen in the UAE and Bahrain, for example, I mean, the Israelis are just shocked at the level of friendship. And it's not just Israelis, it's Jews from New York also. Because all of this mythology about the Arab world being against Israel, a lot of it, I mean, I call it mythology because a lot of it was motivated by anti-Semitic bias against Jews and the Jewish people. And that is moderated considerably. So to the point where it's not just about the Arab world allowing communications with Israel, it's opening kosher restaurants, allowing synagogues to be open publicly, that there's other forms of worship tolerated in Arab countries is a whole new sign of greater tolerance and openness. And obviously there are countries that are 
you know, the best way to build things, to build things upwards is obviously simple capitalism. And given all that's at stake, whether that's the peace and prosperity side or the human rights and religious freedom, what can concerned citizens do to try and help in any way they can? Well, I, I think we have to go back to values and we have to focus on real human rights and real tolerance. Let's stop thinking about the things that divide us and the things that can enable us to be more united and more tolerant, even as we celebrate our differences. Rabbi Yaakov, thank you so much for joining us. And thank you for having me. That's all for today's China in Focus. I'm Tiffany Meyer. If you have any feedback on the show or have something you'd like to see us cover, send us an email at chinainfocus at ntd.com. We'd love to hear from you. Thanks for watching. See you tomorrow.